You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Ross, and I... uh... I'll add my welcome to JV's. JV, thank you so much for leading us this morning. And uh, man, that was great. If you've got your Bibles, go to Galatians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. We'll continue our study in Galatians. Uh, Charles Schultz, the uh, creative mind behind the comic strip Peanuts, he said this, life is like a 10-speed bicycle and most of us have gears that we never use. I just remember being a little kid longing to leave the driveway. I had a, uh, I remember I was, I was young, I had just gotten a brand new, bright yellow Schwinn Scrambler, and it had a banana seat, but I just didn't know how to ride it yet, and it came decked out with a pair of training wheels. Not real sporty, but that's all I had, and I couldn't leave the driveway. It was a circle driveway, and I guess at first it was big enough. It got me used to pedaling, allowed me to learn how to use the brakes. I could turn, but man, when you have training wheels, you got to plan those turns because you got to make wide turns. You can't make sharp turns or you topple right over. That's what they did. It was the the beginning of the summer. It was the 70s. My neighborhood was a little bit like a episode of the Wonder Years. There were a lot of kids, lots of boys. And they would all ride off for the dirt hills. And it was this empty lot a couple of blocks away. They had, had piled up all the dirt from leftover construction. And uh, to me, uh, they were riding off to what I thought was heaven, you know. Uh, but training wheels won't take you to heaven, as it turns out. Here's the thing I learned about training wheels, though. They they don't really help you learn how to ride a bike. All that they're going to really do is they they keep you on a bike that you can't really ride without falling. That's what they do. They limit the enjoyment of what a bike was really meant to be. And to learn to ride a bike, what you've got to do is the first thing you've got to do is you've got to take the training wheels off. Second thing you've got to do is you've got to fall a little bit. And the third thing you have to do is that you have to have faith that motion and balance are enough to keep you on two wheels. You know, Paul is going to be saying some very similar things this morning in our passage. That that in a way, the law, the, the lists, the rules, religion, the legalism, it's like training wheels. And and while we might think that they're helping us by keeping us from falling, what they really do is they're hindering us from learning the joy of living the Christian faith, the Christian life by faith in Christ, from fully experiencing, if I can say it this way, the joyride of a life of faith. In fact, I might say that Paul's thesis is is that to fully experience the joy ride of faith, you have to take off the training wheels of the law. 
If you would, look with me. I'm going to start reading Galatians chapter 3, beginning verse 23. I'm going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. We'll finish Galatians 3 this morning. He says it this way. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul, he, he's telling the Galatians that, that with the coming of faith, with, with the coming of Christ, believers are freed from the captivity of the law, and that by faith they've become sons of God, they're united to Christ, and without distinction, they're full-fledged descendants of Abraham and heirs according to promise. See, the faith has come, and we no longer need the training wheels of the law anymore. That's what he's saying. Verses 23 and 24 uses two different images. In verse 23, he's going to use the image of, of being imprisoned. And in verse 24, he uses the image of a guardian. The, the imprisoned image in 23, being, being kept under restraint, being uh, closed in, being shut up. And in verse 24, he uses a different word. Uh, guardian is, is what it says in the ESV. If you've got the King James or the New American Standard, it, it maybe the word is tutor. The word behind it is, is the Greek word pedagogue. Today, we, we use that word to talk about a teacher, but in Paul's day, however, it was a specific individual. The, the Roman, the Greek families, a pedagogue was a slave whose entire job was to supervise young children in and out of the home. The pedagogue, he wasn't so much of an educator as they were this strict uh, disciplinarian who was to make sure that the rules were followed, that that correct behavior was practiced. You might think of it like a, like a nanny, a, a babysitter, like, like training wheels. Paul's point earlier, we looked at it last week, the purpose of the law, the law was given, its purpose was to reveal sin. So the law discovers the disease, the, the law uh, and the gospel comes along then and it gives the remedy. The purpose of the law was meant to lead the sinner to faith in Christ by showing the impossibility of being reconciled to God by any other way. Here Paul is showing that the role of the law is temporary. It's, it's only for a time. It wasn't meant to be permanent so, so like training wheels or a babysitter or, or a nanny, the law's reign was only in effect for a period of time. It was only meant until the time of Christ. So he ends verse 24. He says, listen, until Christ came, in order 
that we might be justified by faith. Anybody see the movie Nanny McPhee? The, the subtitle of it was Beware or be, Behave or Beware. Yeah, that's, how, that's how it was. Is the tagline for, for the movie. It's a movie about seven naughty children and a magical but ugly governess who was there to set them straight. So they've successfully, you find out at the beginning of the movie, they've successfully scared away 17 nannies and their widower father, Mr. Brown, who's a funeral director played by uh, Colin Firth, he's lost hope. And so mysteriously, Nanny McPhee, who's played by Emma Thompson, she appears at the door. She uh, calls herself an independent operator, and she's a strange woman dressed in black, carrying a crooked walking stick. She's got a, a bulging nose, uh, several prominent facial warts, and, and a snaggletooth. And so she, she comes in, and she announces that she's going to be able to teach the children five lessons, and the first of those lessons is that they're going to go to bed uh, when they're told. Now, Simon, he's the, he's the oldest brother of them. He convinces the sisters that they, he, they're going to be able to, to run her off, make her run for the hills, and, and, but he's sadly mistaken. He finds out. Nanny McPhee shows up, and she announces this. This is what she says. My name is Nanny McPhee, small c, big P. And when you need me, but do not want me, then I must stay. Yeah, there it is. And when you want me, but no longer need me, then I have to go. To which Simon says, we will never want you. So she says, then I will never go. As a screenwriter, uh, Lori Hustler, she, she writes about that there's a theme woven throughout the story. So, so there's five lessons that, that she's going to teach. The fifth lesson ends up being faith, actually. And so this Lori Hustler, she, she's writing about the theme of faith that's woven through this story. She says it this way. This is interesting. She says, the risks of growth involve going into the unknown into an unfamiliar land where the language is different and customs are different, and you have to learn your way around. The paradox is that until we give up all that feels secure, and we can never really trust the one that offers us something. Until we give up all that feels secure, we can never really trust the one that offers us something. This story is kind of dark, but it is interesting. And like I said, the last of the lessons that she teaches is, is faith, leaps of faith, what she says. And when the faith comes, the nanny's no longer needed. And in fact, when the faith comes, the nanny that was once hideous now is beautiful. See, Paul's point is that the law can never justify you. It's the mirror that shows you who you are. The, the law is the holiness of God that reveals how unholy you are at your core. The law diagnoses your terminal condition. It, it holds you captive. It provides no release. But by God's grace, it's not permanent. It, it, it's temporary. By God's grace, we're not shut up forever. We're not imprisoned 
forever. The law served to prepare people for the time of Christ. And when the time of being justified by faith finally came, the law is released. That's why in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. The law brings us to the end of ourselves. The bitterness of the law makes us ready for the sweetness of the gospel. The limiting shackles of the training wheels cause us to long for the joy ride of the gospel freedom that can only come by faith in Christ. And so once the law is no longer in charge of us, we are free from the impossibility of trying to win God's approval or merit His favor. And the Christian life lived by faith in Jesus is meant to be a life of gospel freedom. See, it doesn't mean that, listen, once the wheels get removed, that, that, that faith isn't risky. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to fall and get scraped up. It doesn't mean that you're not going to get injured. What it means is that we don't revert back to relying on the training wheels for our acceptance. See, what happens is we fall and we think, oh, well, I failed. I mean, I've blown it. So, so I need to make up for this. I need to do something to cover up over this. So, so here's what we do. So we go and we read our Bible or we're nice to our sister or we write a check to the to the church. or See, those are training wheels. We rely on that to make up for where we failed. And I would venture to say that every one of us in here who's a believer, we have places in our life where we can't let go of the law, where we have trouble, you know, riding without the training wheels. Some place in our life where you say, you know what? My life has to look this way. I just know it's supposed to look this way. And you measure your standing with God based upon your own performance. You measure your standing with God based upon how you're doing. We're prone to view our daily lives as the measure of God's favor. So if in your mind... You don't do it, or you fail to do something, then you lose something with God. And if that's how you think, then you've added something, and you're trusting in that, you're relying on that, with your standing for God. Or, if in your mind, you do something, and you gain something with God, by doing it, then you've added and now you're trusting in that or you're relying on that. You see, faith takes you to a place of vulnerability. See, now you're not looking into the mirror of the law, the mirror of your performance, the mirror of things that you have done to find favor with God. Now you're looking into the face of Jesus for who you are in Jesus by faith, you're looking at what Jesus has done for your acceptance. You look away from yourself, 
away from your performance. You look into the beauty of Jesus. You look into the beauty of his perfection. You set aside your own works, your own performance for your standing, for your value, for your worth, for your esteem, for your safety, for your security. And when you look into the beauty and you look into the perfection of Jesus, the Bible says, Paul says, listen, when you do that, when you look away from that and by faith you look to Jesus, there are three realities that make your life in Christ by faith this incredible joy ride. And the first of those is the reality that you have finally come home. Look at what he says in verse 26. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. See, being created in the image of God, we have this deep longing and desire for a relationship with God. To enjoy God in a rich and deep and meaningful way. I mean, like a child with their, with their parent. I mean, there's this intimacy and security and love and that only children experience in this unique way with a parent. And we long for that with God. I, I remember Leslie and I, when we had gone to Africa, it had been several years ago, and we, we, we were in Africa for several days, and Leslie's parents were staying with our kids. And, uh, and, and our kids love her parents. They love when her parents are staying there. I mean, they get to eat out. There's not very many rules. It's fun. They're safe. They're loved. They're, they're cared for. They're spoiled. I mean, they hardly miss us, really, or, or so they think. But I, I remember, so we'd been gone 10 or 12 days, and we drive up, and our kids come running out the door, and Catherine our youngest, she, she was really young at the time, and I remember she saw me, and she, she just ran, and she jumped, and she just wrapped herself around me, and she just started to weep right there. She'd been fine up to that point. She hadn't cried while we were gone, but in that moment, everything in her missed us, longed for us, as only a child can. See, when faith comes, that longing that we were created for as, as a child of God, now we're sons of God, daughters of God. God is a father to us. No separation, no distance. In a sense, when we're in Christ, we've, we've come home. We experience like the prodigal, the father running and embracing and kissing. He who was dead but is alive again, who was lost and now is found. Jab Packer says it this way. He says, what is a Christian? Well, the question could be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. The whole spirit of Old Testament religion was determined by the thought of God's holiness. The constant emphasis was that human beings, because of their weakness and sin and 
in humility and reverence, we keep our distance in the presence of a holy God. This emphasis overshadowed everything else. But in the New Testament, we find that things have changed. God's holiness hasn't been diminished, but something's been added. A new factor has come in. New Testament believers deal with God as their Father. Father is the name by which they call Him. Christians are His children, His own sons and daughters, His heirs. And the stress of the New Testament is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the holy God, but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach Him, a boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and from the knowledge of His saving work. To those who are Christ's, the holy God is a loving Father. They belong to His family. They may approach Him without fear and always be sure of His fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. The reality of knowing that you have come home. The second reality is that you not only have come home, but you have already won. Look at what he says in verse 27. For as many of us as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you wanted, if you make notes in your Bible, you could write next to that outside. You could write unite, uh, union with Christ. You could write that. Union with Christ means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. What He is, you are. His life is your life. His holiness is your holiness. His purity is your purity. His win is your win. You know, we spend so much of our life like a season on American Idol, you know? I mean, every week, singing for the judges, being judged, hearing the criticism, fearing rejection, waiting to be eliminated, expecting to be voted off, and then hearing the Daniel Powder song because you had a bad day, right? You know, walking into the room, you're taking one down, the camera don't lie. You know, you're just, that's what we're waiting for. I mean, but there is this one glorious moment on American Idol, or there was before, you know, it's over, but there was, but there was only one. And it's the very final song of the season. It's the song that the winner of American Idol sings. And it's, it's the first time, maybe ever, that they sing free. Free from being judged. Because they've already won. The judges have no power. In fact, the judges aren't even judges anymore. The judges are friends. They're cheerleaders. She's the winner. She's free. She's already won. She gets to sing free. That's the reality we live in as believers in Christ. We get to sing free. Paul here is clearly speaking about baptism as an outward sign 
that corresponds to this inward reality. That's why when we celebrate baptism here and go down and you come up, we celebrate. You've already won. Before being united with Christ, human beings are, are clothed, so to speak, with the old Adam, with the, with the old Eve. But, but at baptism, we, we, we've been plunged spirit, spiritually, immersed with Christ. There's this, there's this great scene in Revelation chapter 7. Where John, the writer of Revelation, he sees the throne room. And he sees, what he sees in Revelation chapter 7 is Palm Sunday 2.0. So today is the day the church celebrates or remembers Palm Sunday. John writes about that in John chapter 12, where Jesus enters Jerusalem the Sunday before the crucifixion. And the crowd's gathered, and they're, and they're praising Jesus, and they've got the, the palm branches. And... But they didn't understand. They, they wanted to crown Jesus king so that he would defeat Rome. But Jesus was entering Jerusalem to die for their sins, to defeat sin and death and Satan and free them from the captivity of the law. And they didn't understand it. So, so John chapter 12, that's Palm Sunday 1.0. Revelation chapter 7 is Palm Sunday 2.0. L- listen, to how, l- listen to what John sees in Revelation chapter 7. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. It's a a glimpse of your future, by the way, if you're a believer. Clothed in white. And the palm branches, it's what you wave to honor the the champion, the victor, the, the winner, the hero. And Jesus won. And because He won, we win. And we get to celebrate Him and honor Him. And did you notice the diversity around the throne? I mean, it's, it sounds like Galatians 3, 27 and 28. You've put on Christ. Think about the white robe. And the Jew and the Greek and the slave and the free and the male and the female are all one in Christ and will be standing before the throne, before the Lamb, Together, and it's your future if you're a believer. And actually, guess what? It's your now. Which brings me to the third reality. You've come home and you've already won. And guess what? The third reality is that the pressure is off. Look at what he says. The 
There's no Jew nor Greek. There's no slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you're all one in Christ. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Notice what Paul does. He takes three categories of identity that are supercharged with social pressure and tensions. And he diffuses them with one phrase, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. See, in the ancient world, there was, there was this incredible pressure. I mean, everybody trying to get ahead, everybody trying to improve their life, you gain some footing on a social ladder. To, you, you wanted to be something more than you were. I mean, the reality is, though, you, you were, the situation you were born in determined your destiny. I mean, your social status was cemented the day you were born. And insignificance was an epidemic in the first century. Actually, it's not much different from today, is it? I mean, just an example. The illusions created by social media have fueled... Our need to feel significant in ways that are tragic. I mean, insignificance, the feeling of insignificance is an epidemic in the church. But Paul's saying, look, dignity, standing, significance, worth, esteem, your, your identity now is in Christ. We don't see ourselves through the lens of the world's frames anymore. We, we don't view each other the way the world views. The distinctions that matter to the world, that gets left at the doorstep of the church. We, we don't view each other through the eyes of creation. We view each other through the eyes of a new creation. And to, and to say that we're heirs means that we will inherit everything that God has promised His children. Everything. Forgiveness of sin, heaven, eternal life. You go through the list. Listen, if I were honest this morning and I asked for a show of hands, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, by the way. But if I did... And I asked, how many of you feel like that you're not doing enough? If I asked, how, how many of you feel like you're failing? That, that, that compared to somebody you know, or somebody you know about, or you've seen online, that your life's kind of a mess. That, you're, that if, you, if we were being honest, you're kind of junior varsity. You know, you have this constant feeling that you should be doing better, should have made more progress by now, and that you're afraid, I mean, you're ruining your kids, you're not doing enough in your marriage, your house should be cleaner, or your house should be bigger, you're not making enough money, you're not living in the right neighborhoods, you don't have the right hobbies. I mean, you, all of a sudden you woke up and you realized everybody, you had the wrong hobbies, you didn't even know it. 
or that you're not having the right kind of fun, or you're reading the wrong kind of books, or you didn't go to the right school, or you didn't know, but you're thinking the wrong thoughts, or you're not posting enough pictures, or getting enough likes, or you don't have enough friends, or I mean, I could go on and on, couldn't I? And you feel like I, I don't measure up. I'm, I'm doing it all wrong. And there's burden and failure and pressure, and then that doesn't take long, and that turns into self-protection, and then sin, and then isolation, and relational pain, and bitterness, and then you know the cycle. And the training wheels that hold you captive, though they tell you, well, you got to do the right things to be valuable. You got to do these right things to be accepted and loved, and you're exhausted from the effort. And the reality is, you can take the training wheels off. You are in Christ by faith. If you're a believer, you can enjoy the ride, the joy ride of faith. There's freedom. In God's eyes, you're already accepted. You're already loved. To quiet those voices within you that tell you you're not doing enough, that you're not enough, to free you from that heavy burden to try to measure up. You know what Jesus says? Listen to his invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The pressure is off. Everything you need to be, you are in Christ by faith. You've come home. You're already won. The pressure's off. That great news. You don't need the training wheels. Paul says in Romans 1.16, he says about the gospel. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he tells the Romans. And goes on, he says it's from faith to faith. From faith to faith, which means it starts by faith and it continues in faith. So if you understand it, you, 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 this, this good news that takes a hold of you, then you understand that it's always by faith. And it takes you, it starts in faith and it goes all the way to the end. But if we're honest, I mean, faith, it runs against the grain of our nature. I mean, we want to understand. We want to see what he's doing. We want to be able to grab it. And faith says, God says, listen, trust me. You have to trust me. And when you don't understand what I'm doing, it means you trust me. There's a part of us that we don't, we don't like it. And besides all that, we're independent people, and we want to think there's some part we play in this whole thing. And so to be told that, that it's by faith and not by works, it's, it's, it, 
It's hard to, hard to grasp. And that's why when some people came along to the Galatians, and they began to say, look, well, it starts by faith, but then there's some stuff you need to do. There's these ceremonies, and so we can do that. And there's circumcision, so we need to do that. And it's not much different than today. And people come along and say, well, it just starts by faith, but then you have to join the church, and you have to be baptized, and you have to give, and to read your Bible every day, and pray every day. And we've got all these things you can do. And, 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 and that is, these are the things that give you and keep you in a right relationship with God. And look, certainly there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good things. But when but when that becomes what you're relying on, you've left faith. You've gone back to a kind of works. You've gone back to captivity. You've gone back under guardianship. You've put the training wheels back on. And when you rely on those things, we do it because we can do those things. This old hymn. I have no other confidence. I make no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And he died for me. So the question is, is it enough? But what do we need to do to be spiritual? What do we need to do to have the life of Christ in us? Paul answers over and over and over again. The basis on which we have a relationship with God is by faith from beginning to end. By faith that we trust that when God says something, that when He's made a promise, He keeps the promise. When God says something, faith says, you bet your life on it. That we have a relationship with God because of what Jesus has done from beginning to end. It begins the relationship and it carries that relationship all the way until you meet Him face to face by faith. Now, Haddon Robinson, his old professor at Dallas Seminary, went on to be the President at Denver Seminary taught preaching at Gordon Conwell for a lot of years. But he tells this story about being when he went to go be a student at Dallas Seminary. His first year of seminary was Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer's last year on earth. And Dr. Schaefer was the founder of Dallas Seminary. And he tells about this class that he took, and Schaefer came into the class. He was in a wheelchair. His body was weak. His voice was frail. And he spoke with a microphone, which, which wasn't very common in those days, but it was the only way they could hear him. His heart was tender, but his mind was sharp. And his demeanor, his countenance was like, like he could feel the the pull towards home. Philip Yancey says, faith is, in the end, kind of a homesickness. 
for a home that we've never visited, but we never stopped longing for. That was Schaefer. Well, Robinson tells of Schaefer closing out this one class, maybe it was the final class, talking about, talking about going home. He ended up passing away later that summer. He said, Schaefer said, Men, I want to trust Jesus Christ alone to be my Savior. Said slowly, very deliberately. And then he said, If I stand before God and God should say, Schaefer, by what right should I admit you into heaven? I, I want to say, I am trusting Jesus Christ alone. Robinson goes on, But if God said to me, Schaefer, certainly that's important, but don't you have something else that you're relying on? And Schaefer said, I want to so trust Jesus Christ that if God said that to me, I would turn away and be lost forever. Robinson says he was sitting there and he remembers the chill that ran up his back. And then he said, and that's, that's what the gospel is. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing else. That's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, and if it's anything else, if it's anything else, so we put all our eggs in this basket. And if it's anything else, we're going to be more pitied than anybody on earth. Decided to know nothing else but the gospel. The gospel of Jesus. Crucified buried and risen again. My hope is in nothing else. Let me ask you this morning. Where's your faith? What are you trusting in? Do you know the joy, ride, the faith of the Christian life, of faith in Christ? Paul, he's, he's inviting us bidding us. Will you join him? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Thank you for the, for the words that you inspired Paul to write to the church in Galatia. For the gift of your Son, Jesus. For the gospel of grace. For, for the faith that came. For the coming of your Son. For the time of the law. Being over. For the realities 
that you offer us of coming home, being united to your Son. And Father, the, the pressure to perform, all that's off. That we are whole and loved and accepted in Jesus by faith. Father, I pray you'd you draw our hearts and minds to the finished work of Jesus. We pray the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.